The Plumley Pod, episode 61. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm your host, fairly obviously Sarah Plumley, and today's special guest. Oh my goodness me, we have a treat for you. We have a treat for you. I've been dying to have this conversation for a very, very long time. You guys think it's just me that's crazy. You guys think the only problems in education are in primary schools, are in secondary schools. Well, haha, I told you so. These problems go all the way to the very top. And I, of course, am talking about universities. This morning, I have with me the secret art professor. She is absolutely fantastic. I'm just going to read you a tiny, tiny section of her resume. She's a digital designer and illustrator, and she's worked on numerous creative projects from forensic modeling to tourism apps in Asia. Check that out for depth and breadth. And she joins us this morning from one of the UK's leading universities. A very good morning to you. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Sarah. Morning. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I can't wait because everyone who listens to this thinks it's just me. And I, when you told me what was going on, not just at your university, but at universities up and down the length and the breadth of the UK, I have to say I wasn't actually horrified. I was delighted because it means I'm telling the truth and it means there's somebody else who's coming to tell the truth as well. So the title of today's podcast is Degrees of Deception. And I have to say, That was the professor's work. It is a beautiful title. Tell people, what do you mean by degrees of deception? (laughs) Where do I start, Sarah? Yeah, I think, as you say, a lot of people consider there's some problems in primary schools and secondary schools, but going on to further education and higher education becomes much more about autonomy and students getting the kind of ability to work through whatever it is they enjoy, etc. And actually, they're just more centres of indoctrination and they managed to fudge that information even better, I think, than the schools and secondary schools, primary schools do. I think they're hiding a lot of the information, kind of virtue signalling facts and figures. They have lots of league tables. There's lots going on behind the scenes that, uh, yeah, I think a lot of parents have been deceived. Well, professors are like typically smarter than, than school teachers like me. So you're going to have loads of better ways of fudging the figures and, uh, and cooking the books. You've got a whole bunch of, uh, you know, not just graduates, but super graduates, people who have PhDs, people who have master's degrees, et cetera, et cetera. So you're going to have way better ways of cooking the books than us. Is, is that not how it works? If only that was true, Sina. <laughs> if only the, the teaching and the calibre that you've just suggested there actually existed in these places, that would be fantastic. No. <laughs> but I think they're just more cunning and they've learned better ways now. We've been, obviously, students have been charged for a long time now for actually coming to university, student fees, etc., particularly in the UK. So now we've learned because they're seen as customers, then we have to treat them as customers. And so alongside the whole kind of idea of having a customer, then we've got very skillful with our marketing and our sly ways of getting people advertising, fudging figures, messing about with numbers to make it look better than it actually is. What does it do to the average student to be considered to be a customer or a client rather than a student these days at university. Because when I went to university as an undergraduate, there was a you know a huge degree of respect for professors, lecturers. We were felt very privileged to be able to even go to university. 
And it was nothing like being treated like a client or a customer. On, on the contrary, you were like the, as a freshman, or as a fresher, as they call it these days, to be more PC, as a freshman, you were kind of the lowest level of academic. And it was very, very difficult to even sometimes speak to a professor because you obviously realized how much more they knew than you did. And there's a kind of a huge level of respect going on there. Whereas I think when you're a customer or a client, that's a completely different setting, a completely different set of rules, isn't it? A different ethos. Yes, definitely. It breaks my heart because there's there's two camps. There's the one camp who are still thinking, often students who maybe have come from a background where none of their family have gone to university, so they're holding it in high esteem still. And those students still come in thinking they're going to get the same level of education that maybe happened 60, 70 years ago. And that's not happening. And the level of teaching, also the academics, the professors, the tutors, etc., are often trying to avoid students as much as possible. It means less trouble. It means less time. And actually, we've been told to try and spend less time with the students and work more on research projects and bringing in money. So that's one side of it. So you do get a lot of avoidance and actually kind of people avoiding having to deal with the students very much as well. And then you get the other side, which is the ones that definitely come in thinking they're customers or clients. With that mentality, then you're completely right. They come in thinking they're owed something and that we should deliver something. And all of the ethos about university is completely lost. And we've lost the idea that you're going to be challenged. You're going to be facing opinions and ideas that you might not agree with, but you might get to you know hear different kind of ideas and different views. None of that really exists anymore. They're expecting something. They expect something at the end of it. And that's a job in the industry that they've just trained in. So, yeah, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors on both sides, I would say. I should imagine that having an attitude that I am a client or a customer, and bearing in mind the customer is always right in that environment, you've got some woke, spotty teenagers. How can they possibly be always right? I'm not, I'm not seeing how this is going to fit terribly well with academic excellence. How do you find that? Well, I think... They come in with a, a definite attitude and the kind of idea that, as you say, that they're always right, but they definitely come in having gone through school, state school, often primary, secondary school, being told that they're wonderful and no one fails and they're fantastic, etc. And so when they come into university, they don't expect any critique whatsoever. So critique for them is incredibly harsh. And to be fair, they don't face much critique anymore. People are too busy panicking about what's going to happen and whether something's going to come out of them saying something, you know, offending someone, upsetting someone. And so they don't actually face much critique. But when they come in, they also come in with a lot of baggage that's come from having been at school. So they've got this kind of idea institutionalised. They're very indoctrinated. They have opinions that have been indoctrinated throughout school. And now they're coming to university with the same opinions and they will not budge with those opinions. Not at the moment, anyway. Good heavens, it sounds like a recipe for disaster. So I suspect that they're not just coming in with an expectation of a job at the end of their degree, but probably an expectation of a first-class honours Tell us what's going on with the awarding system for things like first-class degrees. I, I know you uh, came in last night to teach my awesome Gorilla Edders, and you revealed some horrifying statistics. Please share them. We've got a wider audience here this morning, so I, I think people really need to hear this. Yeah, so you're right. They come in thinking that they're going to get a first-class honours degree, and we often get them to mark themselves maybe about six months before they finish their degree, just to see what they think and where they think they sit. And even if a student has been throughout their years at university, four years in Scotland, three years in the rest of the UK, then 
they will mark themselves, even if they've been season Ds throughout the time, they will mark themselves as if they're a first class honours student without even thinking about their previous record, what their current work is like. They have no ability to actually look around and take in other students and what the other kind of standards are at all. So that's not a great start. But then by the end of it all, we've lowered our pass rate basically for a a first. So we were at 86% was a first class honours degree and it's now 70% and above as a first class honours degree. At the other end of the scale, 39% and below is a fail. Anything above that is a pass. So now a lot of our students are finding that they get a third class degree, which is actually a fail. And this is actually spoken about behind the scenes within universities. But for a student, they've got the degree and we've got the stats and everything's there for them. So we don't need to worry about that. And they can go away knowing they've got a degree as well. So yeah, hardly any fails happen across the university. Wow. Yeah. And this is what happens when students are classed as customers and clients rather than as what they are. You are the lowest level of academic. When you come in as an undergraduate, you are the lowest level of academic that exists in the university system. And you really ought to know your place. You're there to learn a lot. And criticism should be expected and frequent. Goodness gracious me. Can you imagine how these army people are? the training officers or the, or worse still, like perhaps the corporals and the sergeants. Can you imagine what they get through their doors these days and the kind of training they have to get those men and women to do compared with us? And we can't even criticise their artwork in case they file a formal complaint and we all get fired. Yes. Goodness <laughs> me, I, I've got to get one of them on. I need to find a retired army sergeant or something because they must be tearing what's left of their hair out. I really want to hear that story. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's very frustrating in our kind of like, not softer subjects, but softer, kinder environments. In art, there's always like a little window of hope, even if you do something terrible, isn't there? In mathematics, you know, you might screw up the answer, but there might be some good working out in there that we can... But I suppose if you need to get some lazy kid who's never run two miles to run 10 with a massive heavy bag called a Bergen, I guess there's real problems there, not much hope. So especially with the attitude, with the attitude of why should I? Or I am a client or a customer. It's not healthy. I just want to pick back up on the time and the avoidance of students because you have some horrifying statistics of how long professors actually spend with students on average per academic year or whatever. And I think people, they will not believe what you're about to tell them. Please let us know how much time currently students get individually from their lecturers, professors, tutors at university. Yeah. So I reiterate this all the time and I don't think parents believe me. I speak about it all the time about how much time I actually get. and I don't think they actually really believe me, but it depends on the subject that you're doing. So some areas you're actually just going into a lecture. You never get any one-to-one time with that particular professor or tutor or lecturer. You're just going into a massive lecture theatre with potentially a couple of hundred students and that's it. You have your workshops and you have your lectures and that's all that happens there. On the kind of more softer side of stuff within the art school, for instance, then it's one-to-one time. And ideally, you should be spending time speaking about their work and giving them some pointers with their work and trying to guide them with what they're doing. This semester, I've worked out over the course of the whole semester, a student will get roughly about 10 to 20 minutes of my time in total throughout that term. Now, of course, students don't always turn up. They don't always come for their workshops. They don't always come for their tutorials. 
and probably with different absences and kind of not turning up, maybe hungover and they're not kind of appearing, etc. We end up with about seven minutes in total throughout the term that they actually get if we tally that up. A really good student will get about 20 minutes of my time in total. So they're getting a couple of minutes a week where I'm looking at their work and the term is actually being squeezed more and more. So we're finding that we used to have, I mean, 12 weeks of term is nothing, but that term is now being squeezed even more. So we're having to put more training in, we're having to put more stuff into there. And so the time we're getting to spend is less and less and we're seeing fewer students because of that as well, which works for some people. They've been told not to speak to students as much as they used to, which is ridiculous and goes against everything that you think you're supposed to be doing at university. And then for myself and other colleagues, then the time that you want to spend and actually just in teaching is completely lost as well. It's crazy. So if I'm like the hungover student that's always drinking, I'm probably going to get maybe 21 minutes an academic year, seven minutes, seven minutes and seven minutes across three semesters. And if I'm really super and I turn up, oh, it's two. two. Oh my goodness, you've gone to the American system. So we've only got got 24 weeks, 24 weeks a year. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. And out of those 24 weeks, once we get started, we've done our freshers week. We have a week in the middle that we kind of have a reflection week. And then we obviously have our assessment week. So there's four weeks off each term. So actually they get eight weeks a semester, 16 weeks a year of actual study. Wow, that is horrifying. Is reflection week what we might used to have called reading week? Yes. I think there's a big clue in there, isn't there as well? (laughs) Just because you're an artist, does that mean that you're not supposed to read whilst at university? Exactly, yes. That's that's another thing that gets promoted. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Oh, it's now reflection week, right? I see. So I can sit chilling, listening to music, smoking pot and drinking whilst I reflect, as opposed to being in the library. I see. I see what's happening here. Very interesting. So if I'm the rubbish student, that means I'm getting 14 minutes, maybe two lots of seven. And if I'm the good student, I'm getting what? 40 minutes? Four zero, 40 minutes. Goodness me. Of actual high quality one-to-one time with feedback on my work. Wow, that is absolutely scandalous. What are these dodgy degrees going for financially these days? What kinds of debts can students expect to be accruing during this 40 minutes of best case scenario of contact time a year, proper contact one-to-one? Where I'm teaching, obviously, the education system is free for Scottish students. However, if you're coming in from England and Wales, you have to pay. (laughs) So So that's maybe something that needs to, I have no idea why that happens, but maybe Sturgeon has something to to discuss about that. But yeah, it's about, I think, 9,000 a year, roughly. So in England, that'll be 27,000 that you're ending up with plus, I would say, at the end of it all. And you've got other things on top of that that you're paying as well. During COVID, obviously, and during the lockdowns, they were getting no actual campus teaching and training. And in our instance, that meant no access to workshops, no access to all of the facilities that they need. They're very hands-on students within what we do. And they were just online. So that was incredibly difficult. And some of those students went through their entire three years without getting any proper on-campus education as well. It sounds like a refund. I think think his customers and clients ought to be asking for a refund if that happened to them. This £27,000, so nine plus nine plus nine, is that just tuition fees? So can people who have to support themselves and find and pay for accommodation effectively accrue more debt than that during their three years? So this is just fees? That's just tuition fees. So on top of that, you'll have your halls of residence or flats or whatever it is you're staying in. You'll have all your materials, you'll have your transport, food bills, etc. as well. So yeah, 
it's a lot that they're actually accruing at the end of all of this for, as I said last night, actually in the workshop that I was doing, higher education, lower standards, basically. Yeah. Tell us about the um, employment figures and, and why this matters and what the obsession is. I'm way lower down um, the academic ladder. I deal with things like A star to C's at GCSE in English and maths. We're, we're obsessed with how many, what percentage of children can we get an, a pass in maths and English plus three other subjects. That's the only thing that kind of worries us because that's what drives our league tables. Our league tables dictate how many students come through the door next year, how many students come through the door next year dictates our budget because each student that comes to our secondary school, for example, is worth three to four thousand pounds somewhere in that region. But it's a whole different game, isn't there, at university regarding uh, employment figures? Absolutely. So at the moment, all universities are fighting for the top spot to be able to say that they're quite high in graduate employment. And we often put that percentage out. At the moment, we're kind of in amongst that with 96.1%, I think, of graduate employment is our statement. However, what they don't reveal is the jobs that they are actually implying there. So the jobs can be working at McDonald's. It could be your Saturday job you've had since you were 15, 16, doing whatever you do, working in a, in a shop around the corner or whatever. And they still count all of those jobs. So at the end of it, although parents might look at it, and it's quite a big statement, and, they, and most universities will have that on the front page of their website. They'll explain where they're at with their percentage in employment. Then that looks fantastic for a parent. That looks like their child is guaranteed some employment at the end of this degree, but they're failing to mention the kind of employment that they will get. The kind of employment that they often end up with is something they could have done without those three or four years of debt and study and could have been learning far better skills throughout that as well. So yeah, that's definitely a kind of fudging of the the system. So we're now selling as graduate employment, quote unquote, a Saturday shift in McDonald's. Yes. Yeah, I wonder what what degree you need for that job, I wonder. (laughs) Exactly. Is there a particular one I ought to study for a a Saturday job in McDo's? I'm My sure goodness. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I agree. From what I'm seeing, I would agree with you. To me, that's just fraud to claim that this is some kind of graduate employment. That's not what a graduate would expect to be employed as. I would happily do that job whilst I'm studying to help pay for accommodation fees and you know extra materials I might need, books, whatever. <laughs> uh, I worked all the way through my degrees, the walkabout bar the Aussie bar that they have all over the world so people can travel and stuff. I spent a lot of hours working there. But even so, even when you're working a lot of hours, you can't fully make enough money to live at university. And then then there's the tuition fee expense on top. So I would be really rather hacked off if I'd done my three years, racked up £27,000 tuition fees, plus, I don't know, what, 10 grand a year minimum for like living expenses, that's another 30 grand. What's that? 57,000 pounds. And then I'm still in the walkabout bar after I graduate with my first class honours in making burgers or whatever it is we, we teach at degree level these days. I mean, that would actually be useful, I suppose, teaching someone how to make a good burger. Some of these courses that I'm reading about online, these degrees that you can take now, goodness me, come back burger making, all, all is forgiven. Definitely. But yeah, it's absolutely shocking. I know. There was something else you... Do feel free to come back in on the jobs thing if you have more. But I I do also want to ask you about teaching quality, something close to my heart. I would love to know what's going on in universities with regard to teaching quality and how... See, we have Ofsted at our level of the game. They don't trust us, primary schools, secondary schools. They send Ofsted in. But what what, what kind of things happen at universities? How how is teaching quality assessed? Well, 
there's different levels and different tiers. Within further education, which is colleges at the moment, I would say they have a more rigorous kind of exam, I suppose, or test of, of their teaching quality. And they have lesson observations, which are unexpected. Someone drops in. Granted, there's someone from the, the establishment, but someone drops in. They're always dreaded. It's usually someone who's very much a job's worth and wants to tick boxes, but they can be quite rigorous about the quality of teaching and really pick you up on that. So I would say that further education in college is actually stronger and more robust in their teaching quality. University, we mark our own homework. (laughs) So we get um, others in from other areas within the university to come and mark our own courses. Now, this doesn't happen. We have no lesson observations. So I wouldn't know what one colleague is doing to another. Everyone's very secretive. They tend to guard their lessons because they're nervous about just how they come across or what happens there when someone's kind of observing their class and things. So, yeah, it's very secretive. We don't get to see the ILSR type examinations, which is what we have at university. They're actually just coming in from other people within the university, basically. And so, of course, we want the university to do well. And so, of course, the courses and everything are going to be marked. There's a little bit of kind of rigour and critique, but nothing to the level that you have with Ofsted, which equally I don't agree with their kind of manner and way that they're going about this. But the level of actual rigour is very, very low within the university, I would say. And also within the university, we're having, we've got less and less academics now. So we did have, we had more academics than we had faculty, than we had kind of admin staff and now we've got far more admin staff than we have academics and our really really strong teaching and kind of structure and our tutors and those that I really respected that I've worked with for the last sort of 10 years or so a lot of them have left in the last few years because they just find that they aren't getting to teach well they aren't getting to teach they're often busy doing paperwork etc or doing courses and things that they have to kind of be put through various training but yeah, a lot of that is lost and a lot of our really good teaching quality is being lost to industry now. So people are going back into industry from the, the kind of areas that they've been teaching in, sadly. And what we're left with is the brown nosers, those that want to get promoted, those who are ticking the boxes, following the rules and making sure that they just keep their noses clean and rise to the top, basically, which is a really sad state of affairs at university. It's even worse these days because some of those things that you've mentioned, like ticking boxes and brown nosing and whatever and saying the right thing was one thing. But now that we have all of this woke indoctrination everywhere, this stuff is absolutely revolting. It's on steroids, is it not, compared with previous decades? Absolutely. They're not just the average brown noser anymore. They're wearing the the West targets probably on their lapels almost. (laughs) Uh, do you have badges yet? Do you have uh, woke level badges or maybe different coloured lanyards for professors who are super green or, uh, you know, super LGBTQ or something? I, I don't know. They're going to start oh, wearing pips, aren't they, or something don't on their, on their lapels? <laughs> it's, it's horrifying. It's just horrifying. What was I going to pick up on? There was something I want to come back to a bit more about teaching quality, but I just want to nip in with when I was in some of the more dodgy secondary schools in which I elected to teach in my career. I used to have people from the local authority come in to assess, often without notice, just walk into my classroom with a clipboard. Ofsted used to get 24 hours notice for that, but I was never really bothered about Ofsted because I knew what they liked. That was easy. It's just a performance. And they know it as well. They know they want you to perform. They know what they're up to. But the other one that used to drive me crackers was we'd just have people from either the maths department coming in, like the head of maths would come in to assess my lessons whenever. But we'd, we'd get like senior leaders 
So I'd have the, you know, an assistant head teacher come in to assess my mathematics teaching. And he was like a PE teacher. His degree was in like PE. I'm like, right, I see. I, in the end, I, I threw them out. Yeah. Because I, I was having so many guests in my classroom assessing. I scored outstanding on every assessment I ever had. So it wasn't because I was struggling, I hasten to add. But the problem was they were trying to get their averages up. They needed more outstanding observations. So they'd just come and observe me more. So that the number of total outstanding observations was rising. But it was just the same number of teachers who was just producing more of these outstanding grades. It was outrageous. And in the end, I threw them out because it's distracting for the children. Okay, fair enough. Occasionally, you need to come in and check I'm doing my job. To be fair, you can see that when the GCSE results come in because I'm a core subject. So it's very obvious whether or not Mrs. Plumley's doing her job. You can see it really clearly, like on the billboards outside the school, kind of clearly. But anyway, in case they need to come in and tick their boxes, you do that. But in the end, it was putting the children off. The children need some kind of sort of security in a mathematics lesson because it's kind of scary because you get lots of stuff wrong in maths. And a lot of people get emotional about the subject because there's a, a right, a hard right and a hard wrong. And it's not very nice to have these strange adults wandering in all the time with their clipboards. And even if they're adults known to the school, the children know that he teaches PE. How is he assessing a maths teacher? Like, it, the children get it. It's like, come on, just stop it. So in the end, I did. I threw them out. I'd had enough of it. I've said, no, come on, you've got plenty of data on me. Go and observe some other members of staff. Like, this, isn't, this is not on at all. So yeah, they, it was really, really heavy. There's quite a lot of oversight at secondary school. Not nice at all. But you have a really good, a really good scam, don't you? Tell us, you know, this is so clever. I wish I'd thought of it myself. Tell us about how you get your university into like the top 10 for teaching quality. There's a nice little method, isn't there? A nice little tactic that's going on. Do yeah. tell everybody. It's this, is this is genius. It's evil genius, but it is it's, genius. It's it worked so well for us as well. <laughs> yeah, so we have these things. All universities have them. It's a national survey, student survey. All the universities in the UK take part in it. And it's usually brought in maybe a couple of weeks before they hand in, before their assessments, before whatever it is that they've got, exams, etc. And we get them to fill it out. And often, if we just tell them that the last thing they want to do is graduate from a university that has failings in teaching quality or a student kind of experience, etc., they don't want to be graduating from somewhere like that now, do they? So and this kind of sows the seed for them when they're filling in those surveys to just make sure they up their scores just to get that through the kind of uh, hurdle of being able to say they graduated from university in the top 10. So it works both ways. They kind of, they do that, we get the results we want and it works out fantastically and has worked out fantastically for the last five, six years for us as well. So yeah, that's more of the fudging of numbers. Yeah, so it's the kind of case where by the reputation of the university that you did your degree at actually matters to you because that goes with you. That kind of reputation goes with your degree sort of forever, really. People aren't checking when was this university good between what years or but people just kind of know of the overall reputation or, the, or if, if anything else, the current reputation of those universities. So it's kind of sort of Oh, well, yes, if you want to be known as someone who came from a top 10 university, well, well, we need to be upping those scores. Don't, it didn't fully sort of sink in until partway through your lecture last night. And I thought, oh, that's evil genius. Of course, this works both ways. Then you get your top 10 and they get to go around saying, we. so the whole thing, it could be garbage what's going on. But this is communism, isn't it? Where you pretend to teach exceptional lessons. They pretend to have had exceptional lessons so that you can be in the top 10 and they can say, we went to a university that's in the top 10 for teaching. 
Exactly. Unbelievable. It's genius. <laughs> this evil genius. I shouldn't like it, but that little nasty part of me thinks it's really clever and really I funny. Know. And all the universities are doing it. It's not just, you know, one specific university. They're all at it because obviously they all want to be in that sort of top leagues for various things as well. So there's lots of tactics, but that's the kind of main tactic is to bring that in just before assessment, just before graduation. How do you get them to fill the surveys in? Because students are notoriously lazy and lethargic and they don't want to do anything, especially the ones who go out drinking all the time and doing drugs and stuff. Well, how do you get them to actually fill in a survey? So we often have meetups where we have um, various things that happen throughout the year and we class these as important ones. They have to be there. And especially as they get towards the end when they're getting towards exams, etc. So we send out an email that says that this is an important meeting that we've got and it's to discuss, you know, kind of things going on about the assessment procedure, etc. And often in those meetings, we then take them to the computer rooms and we get them to fill in the survey there. And then so we have them captive audience and they have to do it. They're all there because they've been worried about learning more stuff about what's happening with the exams, etc. And then, yeah, they kind of use that as a vehicle to get them in to fill in the forms. The good old false pretenses. But we're going to give you some hints and tips for your exams. Sit there and fill that in. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, you don't want to graduate from university that's in anything less than the top 10 for teaching, do you? Do you? Do you? Do you? Do you? Yeah, cool. And they probably assume that even if these surveys are anonymous, they probably assume that they're not in this day and age with all the, the super duper spy tech that everyone seems to employ cookies and whatnot. So even if it is anonymous, I suppose a lot of students would suspect that it's not anonymous, right? I would imagine there's a lot of data gathering going on behind the scenes as well. What I find interesting is if they haven't filled in the survey, they were absent for that day or whatever happens, they get an email to ask them to fill it in. So somewhere along the line, it's not anonymous because they know who's filled in and they know who hasn't. So even if it's not names, it might be their student number that's coming through or something. So they definitely get the message that, yeah, it's something that's being tracked. And so it's best to fill that in. Yeah, for sure. And even if that email system didn't happen, I would assume that they're going to know who's filled it what in anyway. And in which case, I wouldn't want to be slating the tutor or the professor or the lecturer that's going to be grading my final degree. Like, I, I, I would be concerned about that in the extreme. I'll be honest here, I'm not going to... That would be a very stupid thing to do, to grade my professor as, as a one out of 10 for teaching, knowing that that professor is going to be marking my final degree. Yeah. And what's interesting is, so that's the, the national um, student survey, but we also have regular surveys that go on for our undergrads before they get to the point of their final year. And in those instances, the students are a little bit more honest sometimes because it's an internal survey, so it doesn't actually get exposed and there's nothing that actually gets released to the press or the media or anything. So these surveys are often just taken by their course kind of leader or whoever and they fill those out and sometimes they're a lot more honest particularly with certain the, the younger stages within university because they're just in they haven't learned the system they haven't been put through all of the different kind of techniques so they're still being quite honest and straightforward about these surveys as well and what we did find that was our first years were being too honest and so now we've decided the best thing is to stop those surveys in first year and just have those surveys going on in the older years. <laughs> oh wow I'm, I'm gonna get my red flag out Woo! goodness me goodness but let's just lie let's just let's yeah. just delete that information let's just stop that information channel coming in it's not saying what we like so we just won't we just won't have that channel open anymore yeah what could possibly go wrong 
I know. Oh my goodness. That, that's the only point at which a university actually might genuinely be able to learn anything from its intake, from its students, because you haven't got to them yet. Yeah. Other parts of the system have got to them. Secondary schools, colleges, sixth forms, primary schools. But you, this is your one chance as a university to take information from the current generation that might be more genuine than those who've been in the system two, three, maybe even four years. Yeah. We might as well just be putting our fingers in our ears and saying la 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 because there's no point in, in, in these surveys because we're not listening at all. And yeah, all the information that we're, we're getting by the time they're starting to fill those surveys in, yeah, they've been through the system, they know the ropes, they know what they're supposed to be saying and what they're not supposed to be saying and what leads to the higher league tables, etc. So yeah, they, they're just ignoring some of the data. That works both ways as well because students are getting the same impression. So they're learning that if you're nice and you say all of the right things, then this is what you get. But if you're naughty and you say some things that other people don't like, you're not going to get anything. That kind of has a much darker and broader application, doesn't it, in, in, in later life? If this is not just something you're learning for the sake of being at university or, or what, that only applies whilst you're in university, this is applying outside in the big bad world, is it not now? We're laughing about it, but it's horrible. It's really, really sinister and it's nasty techniques that are now being used, as I say, from the kind of marketing sort of skills to the much more sinister kind of way of nudging people into certain behaviours that we're now dealing with, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. You unveiled a horrifying statistic last night. I'll just read it for the benefit of the people who weren't at last night's lecture. 3% of post office workers had a degree in 1992. We now have 30% of post office workers with a degree. Now, I've been a postie. I used to deliver the mail as one of my uh, awesome jobs. I used to love that job. It was, I used to have my bicycle and I really enjoyed it. I so did, but I definitely did not need a degree to do it. In fact, I was doing it before I got even my first degree. I was doing it at sort of like 18, 19, and I loved it. I did it again later in my 20s. Why are so many post office workers having degrees now? From 3% in 1992 to 30% in 2023? What? What's that about? There's possibly two reasons. One of those is that they're all kind of industries are now or have been in the past expected to bring people in with qualifications. So we have an overqualified workforce who now have degrees but didn't actually need them. And then we also have those who've done degrees in completely different areas and can't get work within those areas. And so they're now working in other places, i.e. the post office or whatever. So there's a, a mix of two things happening there. It's the um, overqualification of whatever you're working now. So even being, you know, a kind of shop manager or something, people are expected now to have some form of business degree or something there as well. And then there's the people who went through a completely different course and are now just finding jobs wherever they can and they're overqualified for those jobs as well. Why would the evil ones, let's pretend we're the ones in the hollowed out volcano, let's pretend it's our evil plan. Why would we want, you know, a whole bunch of posties having degrees how does that help us out? Why do we want this overqualified workforce? Why is it good for us? I suppose if you've got a, a, a group of people who you're expected to have some qualification, it means you have to go to university, you have to get your degree, and you've got those extra three or four years on top of your 13 years that you've already had of indoctrination, and you just keep them through the system until they get well into their 20s, and then you've got them pretty much by that point. They're reliant on all of the techniques that have been used throughout education. Now they're reliant on kind of government stuff and on the information they're getting through the indoctrination. So it's really helpful to keep the students within the system, I would say, and keep people getting degrees as well. 
it keeps them younger and less mature because yeah. whilst they're still inside an institution, they're not in the big bad world. They're less likely to have children whilst they're at uni than they would be if they were out in the big bad world earning money and actually being able to provide things for children. And also, I would say the debt. I know that's not as big a thing yes, in, in Scotland, yes. but it's huge for the, for the rest of the country. The longer you're in these institutions, the, the, the greater debt you're racking up. Imagine if you have to resit a year these days as well or something because something goes wrong. Can, like, the, the, the money, you're basically owned by the state for the rest of your life. If, you've, if you come out of uni with like 50K to 80K of debt, I mean, we saw some people last night saying about 70,000 pound debts, 80,000 pound debts from, from one degree, one flipping degree, because that's the tuition fees plus the, the cost of living whilst you're at uni. And even those people who work and support themselves, you are still racking up debt because you can't, if you're doing a proper degree and you're doing it properly, you can't do that and work full time. No, it doesn't. There's not enough. There's not enough hours. If, you, if you're studying French or reading history and you're doing a proper job or the law or something, there's no way you're going to be able to do, you know, 35 hours a week in order to be able to pay for or 40 hours a week to be able to pay for your living costs, your transport, the bills, the electricity, the gas, the water. In fact, most children learn that, that water isn't actually free when they go to university for the first time, don't they? Yes. The water bill. What? Isn't water free? Actually, no, it's never been free. <laughs> Not for a very, very long time anyway. Yeah, bless goodness me. What a horrifying thing. And the thought of, you must be so depressed. If if you went to university, I don't know, to train to be a lawyer and for some reason you didn't get pupillage perhaps, you couldn't do the barrister bit that you wanted to do and you end up working as a postie or in the post office, you must be pretty hacked off, especially if you're saddled with 50k of debt or 80k of debt. That's going to take a really long time to pay off on the kind of wages, certainly the kind of wages I was on at the post office anyway. Yeah, and I think it just creates a, a disillusioned workforce, a generation now that are very much, they know they're in debt, they're not guaranteed the jobs that they thought they would get as well, even though they were promised these things. There's the, as I say, the kind of smoke and mirrors, there's the emperor's new clothes where we all kind of ignore the various things that's going on. Nobody actually calls that out. And then because they're in debt, I suppose, and because they're constantly paying, it comes out of your pay on a monthly basis, then there's the whole government watching over you and kind of... I suppose, reliance on the government throughout. And as you say, they've got you then. You're there for the rest of the, your life, basically, yeah, until that's dependency. paid off. more, yeah. Dependent upon the state. Definitely. People who should never have been dependent upon the state. They could have been out at 16 or 18, earning money, doing well, thriving, making a family, yeah, having a good trade, something that's really valuable to other people. What does Peterson say? Be a plumber, be a good one. <laughs> be yes. a plumber, be a good one. Yeah, because that's the, the stats are there for the students that we get coming through from school. They have no skills there. There's no personal sort of social skills. There's no, everything's missing from it when they come. And that's just because, as you say, they're infantilised. They've been kept young for as long as possible and reliant on the government for as long as possible as well. That's really interesting. That touches on something else you talked in detail about last night. Thank you for reminding me. What about the way in which you're trawling for students that you want to take onto these courses in the first place. Because it strikes me that the calibre of student that used to go to university are not quite the same thing now as it was even 15, 20 years ago. Uh, from what I was saying from you last night, I'm bang on. But do tell us what's happening, what's going on. So behind the scenes then, there's obviously things that we look at now rather than the skill set that they're bringing and the postal qualifications that they've got from school. So we're also looking at Students who come from marginalised backgrounds that come from certain areas of cities, there's specific codes for those students that come from those areas and they are more likely to have 
the kind of levels lowered so that they can get in easier into university. It means that we have more money coming in for those particulars, more funding when we bring in those students, students from different backgrounds, ethnic minorities, etc. There's more money comes in for those students rather than our kind of average student, working class student coming from whatever background, working hard, come from a nice family, try and get in with the qualifications that they thought they just needed to get into university. But they're fighting against all these other issues, the underlying things that they're not aware of, these hidden things that are happening as well. What kind of tactics are employed to find out if you're bringing in the right kind of students? The students that are lucrative, by that I mean the students that are lucrative to the university, not the actual right kinds of students that we used to have, you know, the clever ones, the ones who (laughs) would do well at these academic qualifications and then would provide back for society. So they would use their intelligence, they would take this extra learning and then they would bring good things to our society. How are we ensuring that that's not happening any longer? What's going on? There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes, such as analysing behaviours, making sure that the students that we're looking at are the right students to come in. Are they using the right buzzwords within their statements? Are they using them within interviews where they come for on the day for actual acceptance? Are they using sustainability? Are they using inclusion, diversity, etc. when they're speaking about these things as well? If those buzzwords are ticked and they come from one of those backgrounds, fantastic, then you're pretty much guaranteed to get in. You might be almost a failing student with very little skill, but this is fantastic for us. It meets the stats and it meets the all the tick box stuff that were asked for by the government. So, yeah, there's lots of different uh, ways of getting these students in. And also we visit schools. We go around the schools in these deprived areas to actually try and convince them to come to university. And it's again, it's a marketing uh, exercise, basically, trying to get and make sure we get these particular students in. We're actively now at university level, not just looking for woke social justice warriors who are basically stupid, not good enough to get into university in the first place. We're we're actively giving them extra credit and and putting them up the yes, let's let them in ladder, um, putting them up the hiring ladder. The more woke and the more useless they are, the better. (laughs) How wonderful. How wonderful. This is going to be so great for our... uh, Union, the United Kingdom, isn't it? Aren't we going to be fabulous? Imagine what we're going to be like in 10 years' time, 20. <gasps> good heavens, good heavens. This has to stop. This has to stop. I have a question for you. Do monkeys lay eggs? <laughs> we better explain that quickly. <laughs> you explain. <laughs> so um, yesterday evening in the talk that I gave, the lecture that I gave, I discussed, we had students, top students who were kind of graduating with first class honours degrees and that was one of the questions that I was asked by one of these students was do monkeys lay eggs so yeah they've gone through all this education what would that equate to by the end of it 17 years of education and now coming out as supposedly a top student and they had to ask me just a few months before they graduated do monkeys lay eggs (laughs) so yeah these are the kind of questions we get asked that's the kind of education they've had with no hint of irony no 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 so that was an a genuine, genuine question. It's yeah, a genu- see, that is unbelievable. That's why people say that I'm crazy because I tell them things like this, and they just won't have it because it sounds crackers. Because it is crackers. Oh my goodness, how do you do? How, how did you keep a straight face? Because presumably, if you'd burst out laughing, you'd be on a charge for uh, offending a student or something. <laughs> yeah. I I think I was more flabbergasted that I initially thought it was. I thought it was just a funny question you know and I thought it was maybe something that was going to be with an amusing kind of outcome at the end of it but no and then when I realized it was a genuine question I was flabbergasted and so yeah 
and, and appalled by the fact that they had to ask me that as well. And also the fact they had to ask me it and not just find out for themselves very quickly. I find that really strange as well. But that's another area within uh, education. The students are very passive. They expect us to be telling them everything. They don't go out and seek the information themselves. They're not particularly proactive. They haven't been taught how to be proactive. And so a lot of that is coming through just passive learning. They just let it wash over them. You tell them, they will kind of do it sort of thing. Even though now they have access to far more information and data than we ever had when we were at school and university, they don't seem to know how to use it. They know how to use it for pleasure, as in social media and just scrolling endlessly, but they have no idea how to research properly or find out facts and figures and actually find information for themselves that they can critically kind of reflect on as well. Well, that's perfect. If, if we go back to being the, well, if we go back to being the evil ones inside the hollowed out volcano, this uh, is genius because that's exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, it's playing right into the hands of yeah, of um, the people that want that situation to be happening. People with seemingly high qualifications from seemingly well-respected universities who don't know anything and worse, don't know how to find anything out. Yeah, that's just that's perfect. That is perfect. Yeah, my goodness, it's a perfect oh, my storm, goodness. And, and it's a recipe for disaster. Speaking of which, nice segue, by the way. Uh, you must be tele- you must be telepathic because I was going to talk about the global goals and how they're being brought into our universities. Oh, our yeah. wonderful, glorious globalist leaders. You know yes. that ridiculous kind of rainbow badge with the circle. I saw the likes of Boris Johnson wearing. I was like, what's that weird, you know, rainbow donut he's wearing on his lapel? And oh, when I went to have a look, I nearly vomited. <laughs> Tell us what's going on in that air department. It's, all of these delightful little delights all over university, isn't it? Wonderful. I suppose the other side of university is that we bring in funding elsewhere because we don't get enough money coming in. So the funding has to come from somewhere and the the kind of lucrative uh, projects and, and sources of funding are coming from our big tech, big green, big pharma, etc. So any of the projects that you see going on within research and universities, not always, but mostly are coming from these kind of three big hitters, I would say, which means that obviously you then pull in an agenda from that too. And because of that, then we're obviously having to kowtow to what they ask us to do. So we've been asked via the government, but we know it's coming from further up the field, which is further up the chain, WHO, uh, WF, etc., and the UN, which have their 17 sustainable goals. So when you actually break these goals down, which I did last night, just a few of them, it's just word salad. It's just a nonsense. It makes no sense whatsoever. None of them actually mean anything, but they sound incredibly virtuous and it's just being spread into universities. It's going across all universities. I think it's going into schools, secondary schools. I did see parents speaking about that as well a couple of months ago, but it's definitely in the universities. Lessons, various projects, workshops, etc have to adhere to these standards, but equally we're asked if we can start to bring them into the teaching. So if I'm delivering a brief or a project, I have to make sure that somewhere in there is one of those 17 sustainable goals that's in there too. And unfortunately, again, the students are just accepting it and they're just, they're not questioning it. And I find that that's one of the biggest things for me. If you're somewhere that's doing something creative, you're supposed to be kind of Unorthodox, supposed to be heterodox kind of ideas and things should be completely different from the kind of normal orthodoxy that you see. And instead, we're just going along with it and no one's questioning anything. They seem to just think that's the way it is and that that's what we should be accepting. And woe betide anyone who actually does question these things because instantly you're knocked down as to being a climate denier or any of these things. Very quickly, 
they'll pull together all of the different kind of deniers within one kind of category. So if you're kind of questioning something, nothing's there's nothing nuanced, there's nothing grey, it's black or white, and it's very divisive. And so if you don't agree with the UN, then therefore you must be all these other things on the <laughs> other side of it. It's very clever. Well, they'll have to be careful with that. Because what happens if one of those things comes out even in the mainstream media eventually as being true? What if the deniers were right about one of those things? If they then incorporated all of the deniers together, which they clearly are doing, that, I, think that's, I think that's a poor strategy. I think it's, they, they're obviously banking on none of these things ever coming out. But we're getting quite a large collection now. Climate deniers, COVID deniers, poverty deniers, I don't know. What did we, did we do? The we did the climate one, didn't we? But there's quite a collection of. They need to be very careful. I, I would I would warn my uh, counterparts. Well, not really in the hollowed out volcano. I think that's quite dangerous because if you lose one, you lose them all. That's quite good for our side. Yeah, no, we, we could knock them all down. I think they're banking, as you say, on that technique working, and that it will just keep everyone suppressed with any kind of knowledge. And if they just keep going the way they're going with education, that will stop students from actually trying to find information out for themselves, basically. And I think that's their technique that they're hoping will carry them through. We'll see. We'll see. Let me just read some of these sustainable goals or whatever they are that you you, you talked about last night. I saw one one of the guerrilla editors called them woke top trumps. Yes. <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> I was stealing that. So we've got, we've got goal one, end poverty in all its forms everywhere. <laughs> Goal two, end hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. Mm, speak to the Dutch farmers about that one. Goal 13, take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts. Goal 16, promote peaceful and inclusive societies for st sustainable development. Provide access to justice for all and build effective, accountable and inclusive institutions at all levels. Well, you can't have an inclusive institution at all levels. You know, if I build an institution for those who have a PhD, then if you don't have a PhD, how can you include, how can you be included? That's just stupid, isn't it? That's, that, that's a nonsense. That's a complete, in fact, I think you described that last one as word salad. Yeah. And it yeah. is. It, <laughs> They've just thrown a load of things at that in the hope that something sticks. <laughs> and none of it works. It's just a complete mix of words there as well. Horrifying, totally horror. Like, like the good lady said from Gorilla Red, woke top trumps. Yes. We should have a game. We could have a whale of a time, couldn't we? As <laughs> kinds of people with that sort of thing. I might have to have a think about that. Um, that could, could maybe, maybe our Christmas party. We should have <laughs> woke top trumps. Well, I've had enough of it. We've got to laugh at them because otherwise it's too dark and it's, it's a very kind of, you feel powerless and hopeless and that's what they want. But if we laugh at them, they both hate it because they're crazy psychopaths. So they hate being laughed at. But also it makes us feel better and makes us realize that actually we can do something about this. You know, all is, you know, not lost. There are ways out of this. We can tell us about some of the positives. You were talking last night about skills-based hiring, which I think sounds great as opposed to based on these dodgy qualifications. There are people out there that are in industry going, hang on a minute, these degrees are crap. Let's hire on different basis. Is that right? Yes, there's lots of areas within industry that are now starting to hire on skills-based learning instead. So they're looking more, and they've realised that those coming in with degrees just aren't ready. And that's across the board with industry. From the industry that I speak to, stuff that I've looked at and researched, even Google and Apple have stopped hiring based on qualifications. They're starting to look for this kind of skill-based hiring. And so that comes with just experience, real-world experience, 
putting your learning into context. People who are hungry to learn, hungry to learn more, enthusiastic, have good personal kind of social skills, kind of empathy, communication, communicating ideas. All of those things are far more important now. And they're definitely not getting that at university. They don't come out any stronger. In fact, I've seen some students come in with those skills and almost get them taught out of them by the time they get to the end of their four years. And they're less confident because of the risk aversion with staff. It trickles into the students and they become kind of scared to make mistakes as well, scared to fail, do any of those things. And you can see them throughout the years as they get less confident with what they're working with by the end of it. So yeah, they're not getting that at university, but if they're coming out of school and they're going into apprenticeships or maybe they're getting a placement internship, something like that, where they're working in the real world, then those skills are definitely building much more And this is becoming more important for industry rather than qualifications and university. And there's other hope, is there not? Now that we have uh, access to awesome tools like the internet and some coders that are on team good rather than team bad, we have all kinds of people like myself, like yourself, who are starting to make sure that their um, real teaching is accessible to anybody and anybody who wants it via our online uh, tools and, and resources. Tell us about what you've, people who listen to me a lot tend to know what, I'm, what I've been up to, but tell us what you've been doing in, in the background, ready for people who are anywhere who want to learn real stuff. Yeah, well, obviously I've been working alongside you for um, the last few months as well and kind of discovered you via being so sort of despairing of the whole situation and came across what you were up to, got to see that and felt a bit of hope actually. And I have to say that a lot of people, there's so many industry professionals who are very awake, but don't know how to get their information to the kids. They don't know how to do this. And I think the kind of platforms that you're providing is the very thing to to use that as a vehicle to be able to do that as well. So I've obviously put some bits and pieces up on your Gorilla Ed, which is capturing creative confidence and not just about kind of drawing and sketching, but about the problem solving, visualizing, simplifying, communicating ideas. But I've also put some stuff up onto Substack, which is where I'm currently housed with various toolkits. So I've got the kind of creative confidence toolkit, and that's just arming parents with the kind of information. How did they teach their kids some of this stuff, some of this problem solving creativity, I suppose, to a certain extent? And definitely starts with younger kids with drawing, recording, understanding, hand-eye coordination, all of those things. Even holding a pencil and playing about with things and playing and making helps them to advance their writing skills, for instance. You know, being able to kind of master their craftsmanship of of writing and kind of that sort of thing as well. So script, etc. So, yeah, I've been putting this toolkit together and then I'm hoping to put together a problem-solving toolkit as well, which is maybe for slightly older kids starting to think about uh, real world kind of experience, getting mentors in, doing a little bit of that. So yeah, that's all housed on uh, my Substack, the Hatched Substack at the moment as well, which is where I've been busy working away, putting some videos up, etc. Awesome. I'll make sure those links are in the description. Thank you. It's not, pe- people think that creativity and a bit of drawing and a bit of painting is just some kind of reward, something that you do when you're relaxing, something that's a bit silly. But these are vital, fundamental, crucial skills that have been deliberately driven at, driven out of um, all areas of education, particularly primary, secondary, and even higher up, as you've been talking today. These skills are critical for our children to learn because it's the creativity that says no to the psychopaths. It's people who have the brevity to say no, actually, and to challenge authority and to stick their head above the parapets and offer an alternative. It, you have to take risks. You have to be daring to be creative. And this is something that is 
fundamental. It's completely missing. And it's why I was really eager for you to come and work with us at Gorilla Red to make parents aware that there's more to art than freaking potato prints. <laughs> Can you elaborate a little bit on, I'm sure you'll do it much better, but I, I basically say to them, look, you shouldn't be doing freaking potato prints. These are critical skills. They're as important as mathematics and as English grammar. We shouldn't have a bad attitude towards People just see it as, as drawing or art and craft, don't they? And that's just, that's not what this is. That's not what this is. Tell us more. Yeah, it's definitely seen as a hobby, I think, like you say, rather than yeah. something that's actually, and I've said this, I bang on about it all the time. I've done a couple of talks for you where I've spoken about it. It's the thread that goes through all of education. And when you get that whole education, the kind of classic education, then all of these things come together. And I said last night, you know, you might get someone studying medicine, but actually they do some drawing classes because anatomical drawings are really important. Studying recording the human body and understanding it better will come through you recording those things and hand-eye coordination, etc. And that's just a, a simple example. But there's also the idea of being able to visualise information, simplify and communicate ideas, and they come across much clearer with visuals and graphics. And I showed some examples last night as well to explain that a little bit better. But yeah, definitely. If we can visualise these things, and this is something I said again last night, a lot of these industries, mainstream media, the arts in general, creativity, have all been hijacked by a very specific agenda. And the students coming out of that haven't learned the kind of abilities that, that could really progress things so much better. And if we had the creative industries and mainstream media on our side, as I said last night, in the whole kind of lockdown situation, it just wouldn't have happened because that information would have been so clear and concise and got through to people so quickly compared to the kind of trickle of information and facts and figures that were coming through. And that some people are doing a lot of work behind the scenes and trying to find out as much information, but people just don't take it in as well. So if you have visuals there, you can quickly see that masks maybe weren't working or various things that were happening, the, the figures that they were giving us for people dying from COVID, etc., were just completely wrong. That could have been really visualised fast if we'd had the industries on our side. And unfortunately, they weren't. They were busy marketing for Boris Johnson, etc., and creating that awful yellow and black. Remember the, the kind of hazard tape type, type logo that went around and stuff? So yes, a, a, an industry that, you know, kind of designed that kind of thing. They'd been on the other side. Oh my goodness, we could have got through that so much better. <laughs> and there are some people, aren't there? Because do you remember those two footprints where they said yes. that you have to stand here? Well, somebody wrote, stand here until you realise your government is brainwashing you. <laughs> somebody had, uh, rearranged it for them and I thought, oh, wow. And these are the things that I remember. Like the, some of the memes are absolutely extraordinary on our side, aren't they? They're so, so brilliant. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the ultimate is uh, Bob Moran and his artwork. That is just the pinnacle of the resistance for me. Visually, he, he yeah. nails it. Everything he was producing... Uh, particularly in those awful times in those three years, was absolutely on the money. It was such a lift to see the physical representation of everything that was going on in my head at that time. It's really, it's a relief to see somebody with that kind of beauty and brilliance and that artistry, and like almost painting what's in the inside of my head for me, something yeah. I can't do. And it, was, it gave me great pleasure and great hope uh, to visualized. see that and also a great sense of relief. Yes, he visualised it so well. And I think for the people who were on our side and thinking about all these things, the, the visualisation was fantastic. His illustrations just got each point across so quickly and clearly with one image that it just shows how creativity can really get kind of messages across fast. 
picture paints a thousand words. Exactly. You know, it had taken me 10 or 15 minutes to explain most of the concepts so that he can just show you in one image. Yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah, that it's so much faster. And especially because we're so visual these days, uh, we're just losing. We're losing, we're losing, we're losing because we don't have enough people on team reasonable, team freedom who respect uh, and, and are willing to put the effort in, the drill, the discipline, the repetition to learning creative skills. Yes. The practice that you need to, to, to be able to properly wield a pencil, for example. I'm often complaining that children no longer have a method for multiplying two, two double digits together. But it's the same in, in drawing. We're not, the, the discipline, those uh, warm-up exercises that you get everybody to do, people aren't, clearly people aren't doing them. I was never shown them. And I would have loved that kind of rigor. And that if, if I actually had thought or realized at that age that there was a process for which you can acquire the skills to really draw, then I would have done it. But I just assumed, like most other people, that oh, you, you either can or you can't. And it was very clear I couldn't. Exactly. My drawings of bats are, are legendary. They're so bad. I have to draw bats because when I teach negative numbers, I do it via the witch's cauldron. So I draw a bat because all witch's cauldrons have to have bats near them, right? But um, I think the gorilla editors decided my bats need some work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everyone has creativity. I'm sure if you did those warm-up exercises, Sarah, you would be fantastic at drawing bats. <laughs> I better make a start, you know, because um, I'm getting complaints. I'm getting complaints. So just remind everybody where they can go to learn more about you and what you're doing and all of the fantastic work that you're putting up. We're basically taking our, you know, our professional careers and making them accessible to everybody, aren't we? We're putting our real teaching, our real information out there. And we might win. If, if enough real teachers or real professors and lecturers do this, we might just win because we can provide a better education than what's going on in these institutions, hands down. And we're not going to brainwash your children while we're at it. We're just going to do our jobs, Yeah, right? We're going to teach what we say we're going to teach them. Definitely. I think there's an earnest group of people who are starting to leave the profession because they just don't think that this is working at all. And they understand, they've seen behind that curtain, I've spoken about this before, the Wizard of Oz type curtain, looking behind that and you see what's going on underneath all of that. They understand. And as I say, there are professionals desperate to reach kids and young adults with the idea of creativity, education, etc., and they've got all the skills to, to pass on, but they just don't know how to get to them. So I think, as you said, the platform that I've got within your Gorilla Ed, that's one way. If you're a member of Gorilla Ed, then you can get some of my creative teaching. You've also got fantastic videos that you've put up for all of the other core subjects. Or it's hatch.substack.com. That's where you can get the full creative toolkit for me with all of the kind of problem solving and industry information. Super. So for your little creative ones, and actually, especially the ones who are not creative or the ones who can't draw bats like me, we need to be there probably more, even more than the other people who like it and are already good at that stuff. <laughs> we must work on our weaknesses as well as our strengths. It's super, super important. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. That, ladies and gentlemen, was The Secret Art Professor, and you can find the links to all of her stuff in the description and failing that uh, over on Substack Hatched. Dot substack.com. Thank you very much indeed for joining us and I wish you a pleasant day. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. My pleasure. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.